Announcements first. So the Mose comes out on the 1st of every month and we're getting very close to the 1st of February. So the Mose Monthly Observation of Educational Science, that's uh, the document that I've been writing over the month, is going to be public soon. Well, I say public soon. It's going to be public on my Patreon. So if you're a patron uh, with the second tier, you'll have access, which is essentially a PDF with at least 10 articles. I believe this one has 15 uh, of uh, some articles that are 2021, other articles a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, and what I do is I summarize the paper Paper, so a 25-page paper summarized in about five pages, uh, and then I bring in some interpretations, some from interpretations and combinations of research that's within the modes, some within previous modes, and some uh, that are outside. So there's plenty of references, plenty of sources to have a look at uh, and go through, but that's what I've been doing, and the... The, the whole point of the MOS is to, one, help myself summarise a lot of the research that I'm finding around educational science. That's psychology, so cognitive psychology, neuroscience, and like all the elements of psychology, and, uh, and then skill acquisition, biomechanics, some uh, anatomy and physiology research in there as well. So it's essentially human performance, how we can get better ourselves, or how we can help other people get better, uh, and then summarise those papers. So one, it's easier for myself, but two, it's easier for everyone else if they want to read things that are similar to me. So if you do want to have access to that and all the PDF docs, then uh, go over to Patreon, which I'll leave a link in the description and the show notes for that. I will add that the blog posts on my website website are also in the most they're towards the end of the most so if you do want a pdf copy of the most recent published blogs then you can access them through the MOS and some of the blog posts uh, uh, how, how do I say this some, some of the blog posts are um, they're, they're put up but they're not edited very well <laughs> um, just, just to be completely blunt with you because most of my writing happens in Obsidian so the blog posts are a little bit more of a, a finalised version in the MOS uh, so Today's conversation is going to be uh, interesting because essentially there are, there are two main themes. There is motivation and then there is an academic debate. Uh, so we're going to start with motivation because the academic debate can get uh, very complex because I'm not that versed in some of the arguments that are being made. So motivation, self-determination theory, is a theory that I'm very familiar with and it's one that I came across in my undergraduate degree. And the reason I want to bring this up now is because I was uh, I was going through self-determination theory uh, in the papers and in the research, part of the nose, and... I came across a video, and I wasn't expecting a video of uh, of, of people talking about self-determination theory, and they actually, like, uh, Edward, Edward Decky, uh, actually spoke about self-determination theory, and there were parts in that presentation, in the in the video presentation, which, again, everything will be linked in the show notes, that I, I didn't know about, because when I read papers, and when I read through academic articles, a lot of the time, there are things mentioned in the discussion that are related to prior research, prior beliefs um, that the researchers uh, and, the, and the people speaking about it in acad academics know about. So when, when they say autonomous motivation, I, I sort of gleam past it. I don't pay that much attention to it because it sounds fairly obvious. Um, and the same with controlled motivation, it sounds very obvious. But they that, they are the premises of self-determination theory. Now, in my mind, self-determination theory, I think of competence, relatedness, and autonomy as the three main constructs around self-determination. You need to be, you need to try and elicit competence for the individual to help them gain more motivation. So they feel like they're getting somewhere. This could relate 
to self-efficacy, uh, but they feel like they're doing something. They feel like they're getting somewhere. They feel like they're achieving something, uh, and it can help with motivation, relatedness again. So this this can relate <laughs> this can relate to the individual feeling at home, feeling comfortable. Uh, bringing in another term from psychology, psychological safety uh, as well. So maybe uh, same sort of demographic, same age group, same gender, uh, maybe even same sport or same interests. Wow, excuse me, choking on my words. Same interests, just having a, a sense of relatedness. Because when we go into new environments, there there is little relatedness. And sometimes we can be a-motivated, so not motivated, to do anything. Uh, and then autonomy. So autonomy has been shown in multiple different places in coaching. Autonomy supportive coaching is obviously uh, the, the biggest point there. Uh, but autonomy, so the, the feeling of them having an individual, either yourself or whoever you're teaching or coaching, having the freedom of choice. Now, the, there is a point here that I want to bring up. Freedom of choice, because I saw this in a, an Anna, I can't say her last name, she's a, a, an individual on Twitter that I follow anyway, um, and she talks about teaching. Fri uh, Fab Fridays, I think, is her newsletter, so you may be familiar, and she talks about, or she spoke about, self-determination theory. She didn't speak about the majority of self-determination theory, just these three things, competence, relatedness, and autonomy, and what I want to bring up is, she said autonomy, and we need to put more autonomy into children's learning and education. Now, I think, I think there's a, a little bit of a a limit towards the end of that because if you give people too many options well now you have familiarized f decision fatigue and when we're learning something if there is somewhat decision fatigue or so many choices to be made uh, we need to add in some sort of constraints depending on the level of learning we're at and this can relate to cognitive load theory uh, relate to so many different elements of constraints led approach to coaching the environmental approach uh, and that's going to relate to the discussion we have in a minute uh, but the if, if you have too many options as a beginning learner, you have no idea where to start. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to, what to push, what to try, what to experiment with. So having constraints in the environment for some choices, so constraining the autonomy is actually more beneficial. And we know it's more beneficial because when you look at... Um, misinterpretations and misconceptions for learning we know that there are so many misconceptions that can be given or experienced through prior learning if there are too many autonomous decisions to make and people just make the assumptions make conceptions preconceptions from what they've had at the time so the affordance is given now if you have let's put some arbitrary numbers in to make it maybe a little bit clearer if you have 10 choices and you choose choice 9 well they, choice 9 gives you certain affordances for you to think about and prior knowledge may say that choice nine is fine but that prior knowledge i.e preconception may be misinformation you may not have understood it well enough and then you do choice nine then you learn about choice nine and you've had autonomy in all of those different places and then you get autonomy in doing choice nine but now you're building up this information you're building up knowledge from choice nine with preconceptions so when you then challenge when someone then challenges that preconception all of that learning then needs to be readdressed whereas if you had a constraint okay we're going to learn one or two and then you're going to constrain the different ways that they can learn in one or two using potentially worked examples that's an effect in cognitive flow theory using worked examples okay this is how this thing works dissect it understand it then let's try and challenge it in a different way through problems potentially even dialogue as well using misconceptions so adding in those constraints 
may reduce the amount of preconceptions added in in the learning stage because we know relearning is much harder than learning uh, to, to start with because you have to remove or challenge and change your conceptions, your preconceptions uh, to adopt this new way of thinking, this new change. And change is difficult, whether it's mental, physical or just in the environment, change is difficult. So adding autonomy, yes, certainly useful for motivation, but can also be restrictive in learning, not necessarily short term learning, because you may want to, to learn about all these different things. And it's great to have all of these choices. But if there are too many choices and too many choices along the way of learning as a beginner, potentially you could be teaching people preconceptions or misinformation without without the intended purpose of it. But without the constraints on there, there are very limited boundaries for people to go to. Now, there is an argument to be said. Well, if you, if you add boundaries on, then you're just going to teach them the same thing that we already know. And and you're constraining, you're restricting their learning ability to diverge elsewhere. But this is where I think it depends on the individual learner. What stage, not stage of learning, because stages of learning are d debated. Um, but what, what stage of understanding the individual is in, in the topic you're trying to talk to them about. Because if they are a novice, a beginner learner, and they don't have that much depth of concepts and connections of concepts, and it's just front shallow knowledge, shallow understanding, shallow knowledge, then autonomy may actually be more detrimental than helpful. Um, when it comes to learning, not motivation. Motivation is still going to be um, beneficial most of the time. Uh, so, so that's what I wanted to bring up. And then the autonomous motivation, controlled motivation relates to intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, and autonomous being more uh, natural. You, you, you become motivated about the thing because that's what you want to do. You're, you're intrinsically uh, motivated, <laughs> to, to use a lack of a better word, you're intrinsically motivated for maybe that's task orientation rather than ego orientation. And there are loads of different things, obviously, in the, in the literature and research that talk about automation automation uh, autonomous motivation and I think autonomous motivation is the motivation we want to hit but it's not necessarily the best motivation in some environments because when you are doing boring dull monotonous jobs uh, or work or tasks we can't always be motivated autonomously intrinsically by those things so we need an element of extrinsic or controlled motivation to get us moving forward because there are some things like essays <laughs> tasks uh, that we don't want to do so we need an element of controlled motivation, i.e. extrinsic motivation from either the, the, the thought of doing the test, the, the need of qualification, or just the, um, what's the word there, the, the say-so by the boss, <laughs> by the boss or the coach. The, the coach boss says you need to do this, that, and the other. It's an element of controlled motivation. The next point I want to bring up about motivation actually comes from uh, a, a different a different source. It comes from a podcast, the Sports Psych Show podcast with Brian McCann. And they speak about social agents impacting motivation. Now, at the, at the surface, when I listened to this podcast... Uh, it seemed very intuitive. It seemed very obvious that the social agents, i.e. the coaches, the parents, the other players, uh, and all the other stakeholders involved in the individual learning, impact motivation. I, I think that was a fairly obvious assumption that I could make, and, and it seemed quite intuitive. But the nuanced points that they brought up were kind of interesting. Now, I'd certainly... Uh, suggest either listening to the podcast or reading the article. Uh, I will probably put the article in the next Mo's, so if you can wait a month, uh, you'll have my interpretation of that over the month. But the, 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 the nuanced points they brought up, or he brought up, was around how you can perceive, how different players perceive different social agents' actions towards motivation. So a parent shouting on the sideline could be positive for someone, but negative for someone else. So 
yes there's going to be positives and negatives all over the place and how do you monitor whether it's positive or negative and how do you change or impact someone's perception of how an action is taken you can't really but what they what they brought up was awareness so those social agents i.e the coaches the teachers the parents um having the awareness of how their actions and their words impacted the motivation of the individual was something that they they tried to push for because shouting on the sidelines, go, go, yeah, you're doing really well, or, or trying to be supportive may actually be perceived by the individual as, oh, you're not actually trying, or you can keep going, or maybe you're, I'm giving up, and, and it can be perceived in different ways. So having an awareness, potentially even having conversations with those individuals about how they feel about uh, the, the support, the potential support or lack of support, because maybe if you don't say anything, the players think that you're not listening. Uh, and and this, is, this is where some of the nuances with social agents comes in and how perception plays a massive role in how social agents may impact the motivation and like i say it could be autonomous motivation because the the child or yourself likes the 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 shouting from the sidelines in sports science when we're doing experiments a lot of the time the scientist the sports scientist will shout and urge the uh, individual on and a lot of the time that's helpful but in some cases it's not because they don't want to be shouted at some people don't like being shouted at to move them yes they're (laughs) from my experience as a minority but some people don't like it so they actually perform worse um it's not many but they do uh, so the the perception of the of the shouting the perception of the support the sp- perception of the words or lack of words all have nuance in how it impacts his motivation so i would say awareness of how your actions impact other people's actions via motivation kind of it's like the the medium there um the the inter interim medium there we go um is is certainly something i i had to consider when when listening to this paper listening to them talk about this paper because my intuition was correct but the nuance uh, had been left out a little bit now we're going to move on to this discussion around decision making and again this comes from the Sports Psych Show. Uh, Dan spoke with Michael about his paper on decision making. And to cut a long story short, they spoke about how to make how players make decisions in action, which relates to skill acquisition. Now, my immediate thinking when I heard this conversation was I like the idea, I like the concepts, but I'm not sure that so they they tried to link information processing and ecological dynamics together. Now, I don't want to try and explain both of those things because I'm not that versed when compared to a lot of these individuals, but I will I will try my best. I will probably make mistakes. Um, so information processing and ecological dynamics, according to some people, and from my understanding, uh, can't be combined. Rob Gray uh, runs a podcast called the Perception Action Podcast, which you may have heard me quote before, and he actually did an episode unrelated, which I found interesting over Twitter, um, and essentially reviewed the exact same paper. Now, the 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 interesting thing about this is Rob Gray has one perspective on ecological coaching and ecological dynamics, and then Michael spoke about decision-making from an information processing and ecological dynamics perspective. So he didn't take the information processing side, uh, if there is sides to be taken, um, and he tried to combine them. And what what triggered my interest in this conversation was during uh dur- during the first conversation with uh between uh, what's what's not brian uh there we go between michael and dan i i didn't agree 
with the ability to combine information processing information processing with ecological dynamics because I'd heard Rob. So I was biased in that view. But when I was trying to understand how Michael was pushing the these these ways of decision making, how decision making is made, there were things that I could relate to and understand, such as the the faster decisions, the slower decisions. Um, but when I heard, oh, there's there's no there's no decision being made. Uh, so he gave an example. I can't remember exactly what the example is. I would I would urge you to actually go listen to the podcast because I, I'm probably going to misquote. Uh, but he gave an example where individuals will perceive the environment and they won't do any active decision making and they will just act. They will intuitively act. And they're, they're basically saying that the information in the environment um, is enough to make a decision. They don't need to go internal and process it. And that is his interpretation of ecological dynamics ecological dynamics whereas all the other situations there there needed to be some processing so they made the decisions from something that they had in mind their prior knowledge uh, and they used information processing to make the decision now my understanding again from this uh, these differences is if there is enough information in the environment now now to bring in some of the terms that uh, rob used online information versus offline information uh, they are terms that are used go have a go have a look at exploration there's there are things that i need to explore some more but essentially the information processing you get information you put it in your head you make a decision about it and then you act on it whereas ecological dynamics you have information and it is enough in the environment to make the decision you don't it doesn't require as much go into make decision and then come out and and the the differences here, which I th this is my current understanding, the differences here is what Andrew is trying to state is that the process of getting information, putting in your head, making a decision, but not making a decision because that's the no dis the the no thinking decision making, um, is also ecological dynamics, which. Rob, I think, explains much better than me that it can't be, because if you've made a decision, you can't decide not to decide. That's my understanding. Yes, that's very uh, deep, uh, very shallow, not very deep, but that's that's what it is. And I will link the paper in the in the show notes, but this, this argument, backwards and forwards, has gone, gone up on Twitter. I may have triggered it a little bit because I, I tweeted about both of the both of the articles coming out like within a day, both of the reviews of the article coming out within a day. Uh, and d like this morning, uh, the uh, Andrew Andrew spoke about he 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 gave a rebuttal ish. So Rob disagreed with Andrew's research, and I am saying his name right, aren't I? I'm awful at remembering names. It is Andrew, isn't it? Um, no, it's not. It's Michael. Where did I even get Andrew from? See? Um, Michael. Uh, so, yeah, so Michael... Oh, I know, because Andrew's on Twitter. Yeah, so Michael tweeted uh, a rebuttal to Rob, uh, but, the re but the rebuttal wasn't anything to do with the science. It was to do with how the uh, how the communication had been had, like with the disagreement. So Rob had done it in a podcast episode rather than an academic paper, and that's where Michael's stance seemed to be. Uh, so he wanted to have a discussion, uh, and there was there was a bit of backwards and forwards on Twitter, and this may turn into a discussion, in which case I will be involved, like as in listening, because I need to understand this a little bit more. I'm still on the side of ecological dynamics in the way that we function, because I don't necessarily believe in information processing. I understand how it works in neural networks and etc etc but yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not sold uh, and I think I need to understand more about the history which is what I'm going to be doing in the next modes uh, so this this argument discussion that they're having uh, I'm going to be following online but my my not necessarily gripe with it but 
Michael, I was going to say Andrew again, but Michael uh, has brought up, he, he did like a tweet thread, like a five five page tweet thread that ask, asked Rob to either make an academic rebuttal or why he didn't bring up lots of different points with research or justification or things like that. And I don't think Rob intended it on being a uh, an academic professional uh, rebuttal, rather a conversation around the science, because one, it's quicker to make. Two, it's easier to convey to a larger audience, because academic papers aren't always as um, easy to digest as a podcast, which, yes, can reduce the depth of conversation, but I don't think the points need to be that in-depth to put them across, because I understood what Rob was saying, I understood his arguments, and I agreed with his arguments, whereas Michael hasn't brought anything else to the table apart from, I want to have a discussion about this, which is fine, which I agree with. Uh, but why why put it in academics? I, I don't I don't know. I would probably, I would, I would far prefer having a conversation and bringing it up, uh, and bringing this up with some of the other uh, pieces of information that uh, we know about learning, misconceptions, misconceptions are useful in dialogue. Someone watching a dialogue with different preconceptions being challenged. Uh, and and this this is the way learning, I think, should be done in the future rather than having academic papers going backwards and forwards. But that's my personal preference and from what the research is suggesting as well. Uh, a couple of final points that I want to bring up in, in this episode is I'm doing a course, sort of, I'm doing a crash course on psychology. So I'm, I'm watching the crash course psychology to see what, what I'm missing, maybe what I'm gaining. Uh, and just to go through, because I've, I've watched some of the episodes, like episode 15, episode 24, episode 7, but not gone through the whole thing. So I want to get context on what the course is about. And I'm, I'm documenting, obviously, all of those notes into Obsidian. But what I'm realizing in this psychology course is a lot of the course of crash course to start with anyway, is history. It's history, it's where people found these things, how people found these things out, and they're very, um, this is the answer. There aren't many misconceptions in there, which is interesting. I recognise that some of the courses are made before the research of Muller was put out, but there are, I mean, it's a great course, don't get me wrong, but there's no misconceptions in there. So when I'm listening to these courses, I'm sitting there thinking, eh, I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with this course. <laughs> uh, I don't agree with some of the information that's brought out in the course because there isn't nuance in there. Now, maybe it's brought in later on in the course, which is why I don't want to uh, sort of make a, a formal statement that they are wrong. Um, but the the nuance in there is is somewhat left out. Maybe that's deliberate. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I'm going through that course and I've also bought a book. I bought a book on cognitive psychology. It's got about a thousand pages in. So I'm going to be reading through that as well. The Mo's will include the, the the takeaway points I've got from the books that I'm reading. So Myths of Sports Coaching is a, is a book I'm currently reading. And uh, that information will be put into the modes. But yeah, so Cognitive Psychology is a, a long book that I'm going to be reading. Then the last couple of points, we've got The Extended Mind from Annie Murphy-Paul. Uh, I'm writing a page. My note-taking page is turned into Extended Cognition. And that book and the articles certainly interesting and I'm going to be exploring extended cognition a little bit more there may be a blog post out either next week or the week after uh, so keep keep your eye out for that one because that's a really interesting topic and the reason I say it's really interesting is because extended cognition is kind of like building a second brain for those of you familiar with that uh, because that's where Tiago's got it from but uh, the extended cognition 
is moral in that uh, the example Andy Clark uses is that some people with dementia use post-it notes on their walls to try and help them through the day, help them remember things. And going through some of the research of the extended mind and extended cognition just in general, I realized something that there's actually a, a somewhat conflict in cognitive load theory and the extended mind philosophy because extended mind suggests that you can store information outside of your mind uh, in technology whether that be digital technology or analog technology and that can be useful and it can be useful but the transient information effect which is in cognitive load theory suggests that if you put information into digital tools or outside of your your long-term memory in your mind then you're actually increasing extraneous load because the information isn't in your head so when you need to remember it either you need to go and find it adding extraneous load uh, or you need to remember where you've put it so you can find it again adding extraneous load because the information is no longer easily retrievable because potentially there are low element interactivity in like with the with the point that you're trying to remember which is why it's now a video recording or a note in a in a pad somewhere or a post-it note uh, and it can decrease your efficiency your effectiveness of learning because instead of just retrieving it putting it into schema into your working memory so taking it from long-term memory putting it into working memory and then working with it you're having to retrieve it elsewhere um, which can take more extraneous load to bring it into working memory and then to keep it in working memory takes a little bit more because you're not just recalling it from your own from your own long-term memory you're recalling it from an external source of cognition i.e the extended mind uh, and they suggest that that actually increases the load which can make it harder to learn new things because you've got added load in that bandwidth how that's how that is significantly impacting uh, different loads different measures of learning i i, I don't know because uh, it's all theoretical like you've got one theory that's disagreeing with a philosophy <laughs> uh, but it's, it's interesting to think about especially when the amount of people that are using notepads pens and they don't try and note things down or remember things they don't try and remember things mainly because they could just google it well if you need to google it every time and that's adding extraneous load when you want to try and use that information to gain understanding elsewhere well now it's going to slow you down and i think there is some truth in this i mean there's got to be truth in this considering they've they've found it in studies um in that when people rely on google or rely on external sources the extended cognition to remember things they can't necessarily have the conversation about it. I, I know it from personal experience that if I've got something noted down and I can't actually rem remember it in long-term memory, well, my discussion around that topic is going to be much more shallow because I can't remember it when I'm talking about it. So I don't know it. I can't bring it from long-term memory to working memory. All I have is this cue going, oh yeah, I've got it in my notes somewhere. <laughs> which, which isn't very useful for the conversation a lot of the time. Uh, so I think the transient information effect can somewhat conflict with the usefulness of extended cognition in immediate learning. However, in long-term learning and retention of information, extended cognition is useful in my mind because we can't always remember stuff. We can't, like encoding into long-term memory takes, takes time, it takes a process, and sometimes we don't have the time or the effort or the energy to put it into long-term memory. So putting into extended cognition into a notepad or on a wall piece of paper or using an object to remind us later i think that's useful then so extended cognition certainly has a place but i can also see some of the conflicts from 
the transient information effect. And then the last point is why specialization early doesn't always mean career success. And this comes from the the 10,000 hours rule, early specialization uh, or multidisciplinary uh, diversification when you're younger. This comes from one of the papers that I explored in the Mo's. And the, the 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 argument I want to put up, the the argument, or not necessarily the argument, the conversation, the discussion that I want to bring up front, is the early specialization and uh, and early diversification as like conflicting arguments whether you do one or the other for long term development or short term gains. It's it's a conversation in sports coaching certainly, but I don't see the conversation happening much in academics because we are still making choices very early on in academic in our academic careers. We are still making choices uh, and constraining our learning constraining our ability to do different things quite early on because when you consider sports the the peak of sports uh, is mid-20s early 30s um whereas the peak of work academic life learning is like late 30s 40s maybe even 50s um moving away so early specialization in sport most of the time um when you look at the developmental model of uh, developmental developmental sampling model of participation there we go um when when you get to around 16 you're 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 trying to hone your skills you're, there's less sampling because you're honing your skills that's 16 but the peak is like mid 20s early 30s the peak in academics i.e. working the working environment the living environment and that sort of stuff that 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 peak is later so the sampling is i think should be earlier not sooner so the sampling is which is suggesting to be like explore all these different ideas these topics these areas these things uh, i think should be applied to university like university when you're 23 24 25 even myself like right now i'm still learning so many different things i still think i personally am in the sampling years of academic exploration that that's where i see myself at and moving out of sport and into academics this idea of early specialization versus early uh, diversification and the 10,000 hour rule of yeah you need to deliberately practice this 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 and this no no i don't think that's true and when i look at a lot of business people that have success a lot of them uh, they don't they don't uh, specifying something really really early what they do is they explore loads of different things all over the place and then when they find something that's interesting to them uh, then they then they d- knuckle down now that knuckling down and that that uh, specialization can be quite early on which diversification some some people in sports find their sport really early on and they dive in and same thing in business some people find their their passion their interest really early on and they dive in other people not so much some people that started their business start their business like early 30s mid 30s even late 30s because it took them that long to find the thing that they were interested in potentially because of the reduced sampling they get at school so i mean yes this comes down to the autonomy conversation that we had earlier as well having having the ability to sample different areas of interest um, and be exposed to different things certainly useful for reducing early specialization issues uh, in academics now that's a whole conversation that I really don't know how to get into right now. So I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger right there, sort of. <laughs> um, and uh, I will see you all. Well, I'll talk to you all next week. Have a good week.